from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the fluid facts about World Water Day, Bechtel's engineers a new push on sustainability, and inside Al Gore's climate reality training. It's an inconvenient podcast this week on 350. It's March 24th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me is senior writer Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello from New Jersey, where the snow is finally melting. Well, that's good news. Uh, has, how's that been this past week or so of cold, late winter uh, snowstorm? Well, last night it was 60 degrees. Today it's 35. So getting getting ready for some more. Uh, my wardrobe is quite confused. Yeah, yeah. Slush <laughs> yeah. season, I guess, for at least yep. the next few days. And... Uh, I couldn't help but notice that you were featured in uh, another podcast. Um, it's kind of cool. T- tell us about that. <laughs> well, I am humbled and jazzed to say that um, one of my longtime uh, colleagues and sources for, for cool tech news, Christopher Lockhead, um, he's got a new podcast called Legends and Losers, and he decided that I would be a cool person to interview. So I'm on there this this, this week, um, that latest episode, and uh I think I'm on the legend side, not the loser side. Yes, of course you are. <laughs> that goes without saying. Well, that's cool. What, what, what's the idea of legends and losers? Well, so his idea is to, uh, frankly, it, it's it's how people turn losing moments, moments of failure, moments of great challenge and mistakes into the things that push them forward. And for me, uh, I wouldn't be reporting on these amazing um the amazing intersection of technology and and sustainability in the environment. If I hadn't been fired 10 years ago, actually 10 years ago in June, I was fired within an hour. I was figuring out ways to write about the new quote, clean tech movement at the time. And so for me, um, it really was a turning point. That losing moment was a turning point. Wow. I didn't know about this. Uh, Yeah. Got fired. I I did. Well, I mean, you could say fired. You could say laid off. Ah. Um, you know, I my husband says fired, <laughs> but uh, I I like I preferred the laid off. But uh, there was a there was a corporate downsizing, shall we say, at my yeah. previous uh, publication. But but that moment, which could have been you know a moment of indecision, it it, ter- it turned about. I, frankly, it turned out to be the best thing in my life for my career. Well, thank the uh, powers that be for that happening, because that means. We get to work together, and I'm really happy about that. Yes, indeed. So, Joel, what's going on in your world? Well, always lots. This has been a crazy week of event planning. It seems that it's a year-round thing now with our three big events, our Verge conference in Hawaii in June, and then another one in Silicon Valley in September, and even GreenBiz 2018 next February in, in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, but um, I am, or by the time... This podcast airs. I will be in Hong Kong um, on my way to Kathmandu. What gives in Kathmandu? Well, I'll let you know in a, in a week or so. But um, 
Uh, it's a it's a it's a bit of a vacation, although it's hinged on some of my wife's work. Um, uh, doing a uh, an art exhibition on uh, related to uh, human trafficking of young girls uh, hmm. that's uh, going to be opening in 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 Nepal uh, in in a, in a few months, and she has to go over there for a number of things, and then a couple of other things, and a few meetings that I'll be doing, and we we're sort of hanging at a ten day trip in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. Kathmandu. So. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I'll just say now, and we'll repeat this at the end, that that uh, a number of us are going to be traveling next week. So we're going to take spring break on the podcast uh, for next week's episode and come back uh, that first week in April. But mm-hmm. that's about the future. Let's talk about the past. Here's the Week in Review. So I've got water on the brain, Joel. I hope that's uh, about World Water Week this week and nothing more serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, we've got several um, very compelling stories on the site um, focusing on this. Uh, one of one of several of which have to do with with water reuse. Uh, great, some great uh, research out of the CDP um, demonstrating how companies are starting to really think about recycling and reuse. Colgate Palmolive comes in for some, uh, some praise there um, on how it's, it's using different stra- in different markets. Of course, you know, water is, of course, I think one of the challenges is that it's a very local issue, um, right? So every watershed has its own stresses and, and, and special needs, and that's what made it such a difficult uh, strategy to figure out as a sustainability manager. But uh, some companies are doing right, and CDP has a a new report out on why we shouldn't waste wastewater. Yeah, I think one of the things we're finally getting around to, and we actually have a couple different stories related to this. By the way, a great package of, of stories about the, yeah. business, the business of water this week. And thanks to our team and, and to you, Heather, who's our interim, interim managing editor for pulling all that together, um, looking at water through the lens of the circular economy. Now, in some ways, that's redundant because water is sort of the ultimate circular economy uh, material in that it, it never goes away. It's always the same amount of water, uh, and it continuously cycles back uh, through various uh, means of the various levels of, of, of quality and quantity. Uh, but starting to treat it that way from the business perspective, as opposed to the linear model of you know, take, mace, dispose, is is real, relatively new and still kind of nascent. So uh, we've uh, got some interesting stories. Associate editor Anya Hollemeiser wrote a piece about circular water companies, um, companies making circular water plays and around the world and, and has stories from places you'd expect like California or Seattle, but also places you wouldn't expect for like Qatar, Australia, Singapore. Uh, where they're starting to really show the the use of reclaimed water and and water recycling and water efficient technologies and how do you just keep the water molecules in play at the highest and best quality? Yeah, yeah, the technology is, is really playing a big role here. Um, you know, Anya definitely focused on several interesting organizations um, that are that are helping aid this everything from internet of things plays like apana that can measure um, and really help understand where the water's going and help redirect it if in in some ways in the future uh, to you know sort of the the, the treatment options like uh, reverse osmosis approaches and and um, and new ways of taking biotech approaches and and treating wastewater differently so that it could be maybe even safe to drink. Um, 
And we also have a, a great uh, contribution from our longtime water columnist, Will Sarney. And he, he reported about a company called Zero Mass Water. And one of the things that I, I took away from that piece, Joel, was sort of the, the notion that just as the electric grid has become more decentralized and distributed, maybe we should start thinking of our, our water infrastructure in that way. Um, Zero Mass uses solar power to take water out of the air and, and produce it into drinkable, safe water. Um, and they're being used, the technology, which is called Source, is being used in the Middle East, in Mexico, in Latin America. It's an, an interesting entrepreneurial approach. And I think we'll hear um, a lot more about, I'm hoping we'll hear a lot more about innovators who are trying to tackle this issue. Well, we're also going to be hearing a lot more about how to treat water in the same way we've treated energy for the past, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and you think about uh, the centralization to the distributed uh, method. So how do we how do we bring water to uh, to market uh, locally and not necessarily with large Stalin-esque concrete and steel uh, plants, mm -hmm. but also smart water? How do you uh, think about it from the intelligence and sensors and meters and, and being able to really uh, use it as efficiently as possible, uh, real-time uh, use of water, uh, just you know, the, the renewable aspect and, and, and also the the sort of soft path, a term mm -hmm. Amory Lovins coined back in the 70s around energy, uh, being able to decouple water from uh, water use from GDP, and also by using water for its highest and best use. In other words, not necessarily needing potable water to flush the toilet or even to water the crops, uh, and finding uh, how do you use water that may not always have to be potable, and, and what are the different ways We've done that. We, we were seeing that with purple pipes in buildings now right. where where that's starting. But there's a lot, lot more that we can do. And it's always great when World Water Week comes around because it seems yeah. to shine a light on a lot of that. Yeah. I mean, and it is a lot of it will be a, a behavioral thing, right? <laughs> Getting convincing people, especially in the in established economies, that that using water in this way is is cool. Yeah, it's the. I mean, it's the well-documented yuck right. factor. I mean, the, the, the reality <laughs> is, is that you know, and and some of it's been just poor, poor, poor branding, like this comp, this toilet to tap, uh, which um, you know, in other words, uh, yeah. taking water from one place and going right to another. And the fact is, we already do that. I mean, most water, as I said, there's only a finite amount. We're not making any more of it, and it does come, you know, come around again and again, at going through various. Uh, uh, hydrologic cycle or the, or the wastewater treatment or whatever. And we're already doing toilet to tap. We just don't know it. We just don't call it that. But there's, there are some new way, ways to make that mm -hmm. a little bit more direct or to shorten the, the cycle. And I think yeah. we, we just have to get used to the fact that water is going to come from lots of different places. It already does. And, uh, and get past that social barrier because I think that's going to just hold things up for a while. Well, when you talk about water, you have to talk about water infrastructure. And one of the things that we are hearing that, that could be a very positive thing out of the Trump administration has to do with infrastructure investments. 
Um, and I believe you spoke with one of the companies that could play a huge role there, Bechtel. Tell me uh, what they're thinking. First of all, for those who don't know, Bechtel is uh, the largest construction and civil engineering company in the, in the United States, one of the largest privately held companies uh, based uh, not far from here in San Francisco. Um, and they've actually got this amazing storied history of, of things that um, it's built from Hoover Dam uh, hmm. all the way in Dulles Airport, uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, the Chernobyl Shelter and, and Confinement, lots wow. of uh, pipelines, airports, power plants, dams, um, uh, rail systems, subway systems, and things like that. Uh, and... Um, it's really uh, quite the engineering marvel uh, hmm. doing this around the world for uh, over 100 years. I think it was founded just before the turn of the last century. Now, one of the reasons that we haven't heard a lot about it, at least in sustainability circles, is that they haven't really been doing or talking about much. I mean, to the extent they've been doing anything, uh, it, it hasn't been very vocal. Uh, and that's true uh, for a lot of privately held companies. They, they're not being... You know, they're not part of the CDP rankings or uh, necessarily disclosure processes. Uh, and so uh, they sort of keep to themselves and they do their thing, but that's becoming harder and harder to do. If you're a big engineering and uh, construction company and bidding on, on big public projects, you have to be talking about sustainability. So um, I had a conversation just to learn a little bit more about that with the global head of engineering, a guy by the name of Tam Nguyen, who uh, has been in the job for a little over a year and uh, talked a little bit about what they're doing and certainly around infrastructure, but also looking at working, uh, how to align with the sustainable development goals, spending a lot of time looking at resilient communities. Um, but I was particularly, particularly interested in uh, some green infrastructure projects that they're working on in, in partnership with Conservation International. So here's uh, that conversation I just had uh, not too many days ago. So Tam, we hadn't heard a lot from Bechtel about sustainability. Um, tell a little bit about how that has risen to the top in the organization in the last year or so. Sure. Bechtel has, uh, frankly, always been doing sustainability. Um, and it's always been at the top of mind of the leadership in the company. Uh, I think as a private company, it uh, hasn't probably, um, uh, you know, done a lot of external communications about it. It's in more sort of uh, internal engagement, internal uh, efficiencies, and a lot of internal work. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we looked at ourselves and we thought, you know, maybe it was the right time to start talking about a lot of the things that we're doing. Uh, we started this uh, when I joined the company. Uh, about three years ago with our first sustainability report. And it was a first effort to really collectively pull together uh, definitions and themes and ideas and things that we've really been doing as a, as a company and sharing it at least through a, a first report. And since then, uh, we've tried to share more through uh, some external uh, platforms, such as we created a Build 100 platform uh, sort of a Build 100 blog, which we're sharing stories uh, from different parts of the world, different ideas, different things we're doing. So again, it's nothing new. So talk a little bit about what you are doing. What's the focus of sustainability at Bechtel these days? So the focus uh, largely is around four areas. The first is sort of um, 
I would say, sort of the nuts and bolts of a lot of companies. You know, the way we go out, go about protecting uh, people in the environment. That's usually a lot of the the safety work that we do, and the efforts that we do to, through our engineering, procurement, and construction, uh, you know, to the extent we can to reduce energy uh, by extension, carbon, uh, water waste. And most importantly, you know, can we do these things using sustainability to reduce our costs, the costs uh, related to the way we go about constructing or building, designing and building our projects? Uh, the other is uh, going uh, about how we engage with communities. Uh, again, pretty standard uh, with a lot of different companies. We work in a lot of remote places in the world. We also work in a lot of urban, densely populated uh, places in the world. So. Uh, we focus a lot on how we engage with the community to make sure that they understand the impacts and the implications of our project and making sure that um, that they're engaged and they have uh, good understanding and that they have an opportunity to, you know, air uh, grievances or share ideas of how to improve the, in, improve the impacts. Uh, a third area is um, Promoting economic development, particularly local economic development. We, again, we on, on a lot of our projects, uh, many times, we're first in the in a, in a very remote area of the world, uh, bringing in uh, money and opportunities uh, related to, for instance, construction, uh, both in developing countries and developed ones. And the idea here is to make sure that there is an opportunity to. Uh, create opportunities for small business, disadvantaged business, and that can be defined many ways depending where you operate in the world. So, for example, in Australia, it could be uh, Aboriginal companies. In the United States, it could be uh, women or minority-owned firms. Uh, so that includes both the creation of jobs, uh, op uh, extending uh, contracts or creating uh, contracts, um, building vendor relationships, uh, building up a, a local supply chain to support the project. Uh, and one of the most important things that we look at is what do we leave behind after we leave the project? So we do early on in the, before the pro, before our part of the project ends, we try to provide a lot of training uh, to a lot of these businesses and workers to help them transition from sort of the heavy construction work and contracts to uh, you know, a time period when the construction ends and there's going to be sort of a, a diversification of needs. What's driving that? Is that uh, about being socially responsible or is that an, a business imperative? Is that something that you see as an opportunity for Bechtel or, or some other business uh, driver? Well, if you're referring to the, the economic development piece, it's, a, it's absolutely a business driver. Um, the most efficient way and sometimes the most, and usually the most cost-effective way to construct these projects, to build these projects, is to build, uh, you know, to work with local workers and build local relationships with businesses. Uh, it's, you know, just uh, economically, it's a lot more expensive to bring in uh, either foreign workers or others into these sites. Um, uh, you know, you, you know, it's just expensive to bring them in, uh, and also not the most efficient way uh, to be cost uh, cost effective. So. It's definitely a business imperative. Of course, it has uh, extensions and linkages with corporate responsibility, but I would say it's not necessarily a corporate responsibility. It's really a, a business imperative to you know, build up the sort of local workforce and the local supply chain. And you know, for, for Bechtel, sometimes we're going to come back 
And there are instances where we come back into the region or come back into the local area. So it's nice to be able to tap into the workers and suppliers that we've helped uh, build up and train because uh, they're just much more aligned to uh, our business processes of uh, quality, safety, uh, efficiency, sustainability. The last area is uh, pioneering uh, through innovation. And you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's nothing necessarily new. I mean, you see a lot of um, articles, et cetera, out there that really talks about sustainability as one of the biggest drivers of innovation in a company. And the reason for that is that, you know, innovation is a way for companies to uh, really think uh, deeply and innovatively about how can they reduce their costs using sustainability, whether, and for us, it has largely to do with, you know, how do we use new uh, enhanced processes or technologies or, you know, pulling together different um, teams with different attributes inside the company to work together to uh, reduce the way we um, generate waste, to reduce how much water we use, to reduce the, the amount of energy we use. Uh, so some of it's technology, some of it's, you know, improving our processes, but it's all under the rubric of just being uh, innovative using sustainability. Well, speaking of being innovative using sustainability, you're launching a, a partnership uh, later this spring with Conservation International called Green Gray around green infrastructure. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, we're in the, uh, we're in the midst of working closely uh, with Conservation International, I wouldn't say it's a formal partnership yet, but we've been in extensive engagements with them to launch a green-gray initiative in the Philippines. And in all fairness, the green-gray idea is really uh, Conservation International. And we found it a very unique relationship to look at. The green really refers to uh, natural defenses, uh, such as uh, mangroves and and other uh, sort of natural habitat uh, defenses against natural uh, hazards such as typhoons and, and um, natural disasters, cyclones, and things like that. So it's a blending of uh, you know these natural defenses with the hard defenses, which is like dikes and uh, and other sort of hard structures. Uh, and the reason they looked at this approach because it was a more sustainable approach to manage storm surges, uh, typhoons, and other sort of natural hazards that many countries, particularly in the Philippines, face. Uh, And what makes it sustainable is that by using some of the natural defenses, it helps uh, sort of mitigate the disruption to a lot of the ecosystems, such as fisheries or uh, reefs and things that are um, necessary for or or vital for the communities um, that live along the coastline for fishing, uh, food security, and other things. So, again, it, it was a unique relationship between Conservation International, which what I would say was a really good scientist and understanding of communities and natural habitats. And with us, you know, we're more of the engineers, we're project delivery partners. So just from at different levels, uh, we find it an interesting relationship and we plan to work together to pilot this Green Gray initiative. Uh, in the Philippines in 2017. Well, this is certainly a different way that you and other infrastructure companies have operated. Is this something that you see as where the world needs to go and you're you're sort of piloting this, or is this uh, just uh, an experiment? How do you view this in the scope of Bechtel's larger work? Well, we've always, our engineers uh, have always looked at um, 
the entire sort of ecosystem, uh, you know, when we design things, I mean, because we design and build things uh, all around the world. And so we, we've always looked at this. Um, so I, I don't think it's um, unique uh, in a sense to just um, conservation international. I think a lot of us think about this, but I think what's unique is that we're really trying to pilot this in, in an area that's prone to a lot of natural disasters. And you see a lot of data that talks about the frequency and intensity of these natural disasters uh, or natural hazards in uh, countries like the Philippines. And I think it's unique in the sense, again, where our engineers and construction teams are looking or are, are engaging with um, sort of that, that, that sort of scientific community to see, you know, how, how can this work? And I think there's some a lot of interest in the replication of this. Um, there is a, you know, that the project, for example, in the Philippines is being funded by, you know, some aid programs, foreign aid programs, and they're actually looking at the demonstration value of this project in other parts of the world. So it's almost, I would say, kind of an incubator um, project to see how can this actually work. Uh, and we are starting it with our uh, volunteers, so our Bechtel volunteers, who have a tradition of volunteering, uh, uh, you know, sort of, I would say, a much smaller scale projects, you know, not the big mega multi-billion dollar projects that Bechtel um, engages in, but these sort of smaller scale projects at a community level. Uh, so we're using a lot of our volunteers to work with Conservation International to see how we can do this together. Well, it sounds like a really interesting project, and we'll look forward to to talking more about it and tracking its progress. Uh, but for now, uh, Tam Nguyen, Global Head of Sustainability at Bechtel Corporation, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Joel. This week, we ran a piece by editor-at-large Catherine Winkler about her recent training in Al Gore's Climate Reality Project uh, Leadership Corps. This was the uh, the thing that uh, the former vice president has been doing uh, dozens of times for uh, thousands of uh, of participants. In fact, there are almost a thousand uh, in this one. And I uh, thought we'd talk with Catherine a little bit about it. Uh, first of all, Catherine, why did you do this? Well, Joel... I have been very passionate about the climate for a long time and taking action on climate. And I've been involved clearly professionally in my role as a chief sustainability officer. But now that I'm retired from that position, really looking for ways to channel my passion and my energy to be more effective. That's actually what I wrote about last month in Green Biz, in fact. And this was a stellar opportunity to connect with others and to learn how to be more practical in in having an impact. So what did you learn? I mean, there, what are some of the key takeaways that you said after, because you've been 
being very practical, one of the things we've always admired about you is, is your ability to, to talk to so many different kinds of audiences, both within EMC, your former tech company that you that where you were chief sustainability officer, and and among your peers and others. Uh, I, I'm sort of surprised that you would even have stuff to learn in terms of how to talk about this. What were some of your takeaways? You know, Joel, I was a little bit surprised myself at how much I learned, um, although some of it was was just validation, and that's that's always um, helpful to moving forward. But some of the things in particular that I learned, first of all, is how broad and immediate the um, impacts of climate change really have been globally. And Al Gore spent a lot of time on some of the effects of climate change, the 500-year storms, the 1,000-year storms that have happened even since the beginning of 2017. It is uh, surprising and not well enough known, I think. I learned in particular, I think, to stay away from talking about predictions and models and, and things that are wonky, because to, to quote one of the speakers, science doesn't win the day, it's stories that, that do. And there are plenty of stories now. I learned a lot more about climate justice. I, I always said I cared about it, and I did care about it, but I didn't know what it was. And yeah, well, why don't you define a little bit what climate justice even means? Well, what the way I thought of it, and, and still a very, very important part of it, is that the those communities that are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change in general are um, communities that are marginalized in other ways as well. But what I hadn't understood was the extent to which they had been taken advantage of inciting things like polluting power plants, or um, the extent to which they're caught in the middle now between closing down polluting power plants and providing them economic opportunity. And it's really important for us to understand the impacts both of um, things that impact the climate, but also of our solutions, and that they be part of that conversation. What's the process of even attending one of these? Do you have to apply? Do you have to make a case? Do you have to pay? What's, what's involved? I simply signed up on the Climate Reality Project website for information about the next training. When it came along, I had to fill out an application, mostly a little bit about myself and mostly about why I wanted to attend and what I wanted to do with it. And then uh, received an email sometime later. I'm given to understand there were about three applicants for every slot. And um, I don't know if that's more than usual. And and frankly, I'm not sure what the criteria were upon which um, they chose the 972 who attended, but I was really glad that I was one of them. So I'm glad you mentioned about sort of some of the tips around, you know, storytelling over facts or, or studies or one of my critiques of the vice president is that his story, he hasn't been telling enough stories and he's been relying a lot on facts. And, and while he can be a very powerful speaker, it's not very hopeful or inspiring. So I'm wondering when you came out of this after three days, uh, you know, intense, including uh, his own presentation or his own uh, uh, speaking to the group, did you come away more scared, more hopeful, more inspired, more depressed. Talk a little bit about your state of mind. Sure. Um, I would say to some extent all of the above, um, but also more determined. 
because there are good things happening. There is momentum. Yes, the current administration is setting some of that back. Some of it is even turning um, it to regression, I guess I would say. Um, but there are a lot of things that are happening that are frankly inexorable. Um, is that the word I'm looking for? Unchangeable, perhaps, or unstoppable, which are um, things in the market, things in technology, uh, commitments of other communities. And the politicians, frankly, particularly on the local level, really are interested in what people think. And there is an opportunity to be, to be telling them that. So I left feeling um, we do have an opportunity. There is reason for hope. And there are things that we can do. So I guess uh, determined and maybe empowered would be the words. At the same time, realizing just how how big the scale of the problem is that that wasn't um belittled in any way well i'm sure that's how the vice president would have wanted you to come out determined uh a little scared and un and appreciative but also hopeful and optimistic that we've got this or we can if we all pull together so uh, I, re I highly recommend uh reading catherine's piece uh it's just a really great insight into, into all of this and uh Look forward to hearing what you do with this going forward. Um, but for now, uh, thanks so much, Editor-at-Large, Catherine Winkler. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can always go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to podcast director Saraya Malconian and, of course, my co-host Heather Clancy. You can uh, contact us by email, 350agreenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you, story ideas, uh, interview ideas, whatever you like. And as I said, we'll be uh, taking a little spring break next week, but we'll be back here the first week of April for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.